Hello, everyone. Welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting and former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. I was also the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere, and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We are a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network, brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership to support our post-pandemic national recovery. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss how the blue economy contributes and connects to national security. And we had uh, in our last, uh, in a February episode, a really interesting exploration of this topic through the story of my former ship, the USS Kitty Hawk. And our host, our engineer, Tyler Buckingham and I, uh, shared our, our, our kind of reflections on the ship and all that she represented and how coastal communities and the Navy work together, uh, both to grow local economies and contribute to the overall American blue economy. So in this episode today, we'll explore some of the spin-offs from military R&D that contribute to the blue tech sector, and vice versa, how ocean industries are supporting our national defense. And we'll also explore a bit how the U.S. Department of Defense addresses sustainability, which many of our listeners may not even know happens. So let me introduce this stellar panel of experts in this field and all from different kind of walks of life. Uh, First off is Rob Nicholson. He is the Innovation Program Lead in the Delaware Department of Technology and Information. Rob, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tim. Good to be here. Right on. We also have Navy Captain Kish Kennedy, an old shipmate of mine, and he is currently the Maritime Safety Director at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Kitch, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me. You betcha. And last but definitely not least is another shipmate of mine, Miss Courtney St. John. She is the Climate and Energy Lead at Climate Nexus. And Courtney and I in a past life, when I was the oceanographer of the Navy, she basically ran our climate change program and uh, helped me when I was the director of the Navy's Task Force Climate Change. So we're going to talk a little bit about that great work. Courtney, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Admiral. It's great to be here. All right. Let's get into it. I wanted to start with Rob, and I I know we've been having some great exchanges on blue tech and the blue economy. And for background, everything that Rob is doing was, I would say, kind of on the foundation or springboarded by his service in the Navy as a meteorology and oceanography officer. So, Rob, could you share with us what you're doing for the state of Delaware and uh, possibly how your Navy training prepared you for it? Yeah, Tim, um, I appreciate I appreciate that question. So I currently am at the state of Delaware, uh, and I still serve in the Navy, actually, uh, about 20, coming on 22 years now on the reserve side, uh, continue oh, my right. service. I'm sorry. No worries. Uh, so we we served together. Uh, we hadn't crossed paths, Tim, but um, uh, we've had a great opportunity to get to know each other over the last year. Um, and so part of my day job, I look at emerging technologies, try to figure out how to implement them through commercialization processes and, and identifying different funding avenues for the state. 
uh, specifically for some of the agencies. You know, technology is a tool. Each of our agencies within the state have different use cases and uses uh, and, and different, basically, pro uh, business problems. So better understanding how technology works, where the market's going, and trying to play matchmaker with said technologies to the, the actual uh, customers, which we consider uh, our partners, which is the agency level. Uh, that's what a primar primarily what I do in my day job. So in, in the past, I've worked on various um, emerging technology projects around blockchain, uh, a lot of cloud work, uh, environmental sensing. And then now that we have a major digital government initiative, which essentially is changing the way that we offer our services to state uh, to the state. Uh, so that could be that could be citizens, that could be visitors to the state, uh, fundamentally changing the way that they interact with the state and improving the way that we deliver services. Uh, in addition to the, you know the the program work, um, I also sit on a couple boards in the state, which gives me some insight and some. Uh, gives me the opportunity to influence the, the direction that science and technology is taking within the state. Uh, so I sit on the Science and Technology Advisory Board that has, um, is tasked with developing a five-year S&T strategy for the state. Uh, I also sit on the state committee for EBSCOR, which is the, um, it, it allocates R&D funding uh, to a variety of different initiatives throughout the state. Last, uh, last cycle, it was water security. Uh, this year, uh, this this coming cycle could be something different. We're still in some of the some of the initial stages to define out what the the future direction of some of this research uh, R and D funding could go to. Uh, what are the key programs that will be supported? And then uh, I had an opportunity to lead two budget development uh, cycles for CARES Act funding and ARPA funding, uh, and we were successful in in both of those. Uh, so that's. Sort of in a nutshell, what I do in, in my day job, uh, I, I, there's a lot of partnership opportunities I also um, explore, and that's through the universities uh, primarily. And I'll get in a little bit about that and how it ties into to my background. Uh, so as I mentioned, 20 plus year Navy career, uh, and, and it really prepared me for, for life, even the, the initial six years of active duty. Uh, and every day, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something new. It's, it's, it's helping me develop out some of the skills that in my day job, I may not uh, be able to develop due to the, the nature of the work. Uh, but I got my start on the enlisted side, you know, uh, did a couple years of college, decided to, to you know, sell everything off and, and go into the military. Uh, I, I, my only option was uh, the METOC community. I wanted to be an aerographer's mate. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to, to get that, um, that opportunity, went to some schooling, went out to the ship. And I started my career as a technician. So, you know, E2, you know, whether you were swabbing decks or launching weather balloons, that was the primary responsibility that I had. Uh, but over the years, you know, I've gone from a, a technician uh, to a, a weather forecaster working out of the Fleet Weather Center San Diego, uh, doing, and that was more focused in, in the analytics side and the forecasting side. Had a couple tours, department head, um, training officer, so it helped me develop some communication skills and improve the communication skills operations officer so you know understanding mission support and how that aligns with uh with uh resourcing and then uh i had actually had a i moved from the operational side over to the r d side i had about three years stint at the office of naval research uh, and that really gave me some good good insights into r d and understanding how um how funding works across the naval research enterprise and what, what are some of the gaps around basic r d and operational needs uh, and then currently I'm the staff, uh, staff METOC officer at 10th Fleet Cyber. Uh, and primarily my, my, uh, my efforts, my operational support is actually space operations. Uh, so I've been working with Navy Space Command at the strategic level. 
Uh, so all of those different um, levels that I've worked on over the last 20 years have really prepared me for what I'm doing at the state, uh, just understanding a, a large government organization and, and some of the complexities. And I would like to add one of the other things that, it, that um, has been very uh, beneficial for my career. I had an opportunity to serve in a venture fellowship program through AFWorks. Uh, and basically what, they, what their uh, purpose is is to, uh, to help improve how they look at innovation and by sending some of their reservists and active duty folks off to a fellowship. So I had an opportunity to spend a few months uh, with a venture capital company uh, called Scout Ventures. Uh, they're veteran owned and they invest in dual use companies. So there's a lot of tie in to with my state job around commercialization, understanding technology and the viability in the market. And then also just my background in, in, uh, in, as, a METOC, as a prior enlisted aerographer's mate and then now a METOC officer. Uh, so the reserves are still going strong. Uh, I may have one tour, one additional tour in me, uh, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see here in the next couple of years of what I decide to do with my Navy Navy Reserve career. Rob, that's terrific. You you know you really laid out a great case because uh, I think the initial topic people were perplexed on you know American blue economy and, and national security and and you just sort of outlined uh, two decades of really interesting interplay and preparation, if you will because that experience is all now being translated into your state's blue economy and blue tech uh, efforts. Uh, really, that thank you. <laughs> that was really what I wanted to have accomplished. And I'd love to get more into those projects you're working a little later. Um, but let me go to Kitch Kennedy now, Captain Kennedy, good friend of mine. And we've worked together and been stationed together in different places. And now you're at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and we'll, just to begin with, like, what do you do there? And I know this, there are some tie-ins, you know, the navigation piece to the blue economy, safety of navigation. So how about explaining that to our listeners? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I, as you mentioned, I'm the director of the uh, Mar Maritime Safety Office at National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And our role is a as a hydrogra hydrographic office for basically the Department of Defense, which means we're the uh, agency responsible for creating charts and nautical publications to uh, enable the safe navigation of vessels. And it's actually pretty interesting because it's written in U.S. Code Title 10 that NGA shall improve the means of safe navigation providing under the authority of the Secretary of Defense, accurate geospatial information for the use by the departments and agencies of the United States, as well as the merchant marine and navigators in, in general. So while we are a Department of Defense agency and our primary customer per se is uh, the U.S. Department of Defense, we also have uh, both commercial and international responsibilities uh, to provide safe navigation for the merchant marine community and, and international and, and commercial navigation. Um, so we essentially, as I mentioned, we create charts, nautical charts. Uh, and my kids like to say, we're ways of the ocean. So if ships are going out and navigating, they've got to come to us to make sure that they've got, you know, they know where they're going. They know uh, we do nautical publications that provide additional information on the capabilities of a port or a harbor to state this is the depth of the, uh, the harbor. So you know if your vessel can get in there safely. Once you tie up to that, that, that harbor, what are the services that are available uh, to you, whether it's husbandry services, uh, uh, fuel, and all, all, all the things that could help uh, make sure a ship uh, can operate and, and get 
uh, back out underway safely. Uh, so we, we work with a large international organization called the International Hydrographic Organization. Uh, it's comprised of, I think it's 96, maybe 97 nations around the world. Um, it's a UN advisory commission that, uh, that works to develop the standards and specifications for navigation. And, and generally, again, it's to make sure that ships have the information to, to navigate safely. Um, and also, Part of our one within that IHO, uh, the International Hydrographic Organization, what we do as the U.S. is one of the more resourced countries because there's out of those 96, not all of them are first rate countries and have the resources that we do. We are primary charting authorities for those nations that don't have the resources and capabilities to do charting for themselves. Uh, examples are Palau, Micronesia, uh, Costa Rica, Honduras. Again, nations that that definitely have a blue economy and have to ensure that their charts are safe so that whether it's merchant marine ships, uh, commercial vessels, or even cruise ships can get into their harbor safely, they might not have that the resources to do that themselves. So we work with uh, commands like your, your old command, sir, the Naval Oceanographic Office and Commander Naval Meteorology Astronomy, and NOAA to collect the data and then put that information on a chart uh, so it's available for that nation to bring in the commerce uh, that they need uh, into their ports and harbors. That's terrific, Kitch. Of course, I know that well. So thanks for explaining it to our listeners. And in fact, um, you highlighted some things that I think are really um, worth reinforcing. And it's this um, safe navigation and that the, the the safe commerce it that supports, which is the lifelines of our American blue economy, really lifeblood. In fact, earlier this year, I spoke at an event for the Explorers Club when the MV Ever Given was was stuck in the Suez Canal. And I think everybody saw the overhead images of that incredible scene and all the, the really disruption in, in, in the safe flow of commerce. And it was just a vivid example of how much we depend upon that. And, and you look at the current supply chain disruptions and what that's doing and how it's also contributing to inflation. And you definitely get why what you do is important to our economy um, and national security. So thank you. Uh, that's great. Well, well, we'll get back to some of those things either. There's some great technology aspects too. I'd love to talk to you about your former job, but but let me now go to Courtney St. John for just a little initial question. So Courtney, um, I, I brought you on to talk about, about what, what the Navy did, you and I together, and how the Navy approached climate change, because what's happening right now is the current US DOD is really following the same script that we did um, back in 2014 or so. And um, I, but before that, let me just add, let you give a plug about what you do at Climate Nexus and maybe how what you, how when you work with me in the Navy, how that prepared you for Climate Nexus, if you don't mind. Sure. So um, Climate Nexus, for those of you that haven't heard of it, um, we're kind of a unique organization. We are a nonprofit strategic communications firm, and our mission is really to change the public conversation around climate change, to inspire people, to inform them, and to elevate constructive and equitable action. Basically, to use public conversation to show that this can be a prosperous path forward to address climate change. We are very guided by the science. Um, so we really utilize the latest and best climate science, economic research, et cetera, to show us you know, what the direction that we as a country need to be going to address climate change, um, but then ground it in how 
us advancing climate action will benefit Americans on an everyday basis. So we work a lot with the national media. We do a lot of public polling to understand how and what people think about various climate issues. We have projects like um, one that we run called Climate Signals, which links extreme weather events to climate change in real time to help reporters and the public understand how a particular event may be linked to climate change. We do a lot on digital media and create our own content. So we really have a way, a range of ways that we reach out to the target audiences that we're trying to reach. And really the underlying guiding principle of what we do is that people learn through stories. You know, most humans, despite those of us that might have been trained to think technically and, and scientifically about issues, are not, are, most of the general public is not trained to think this way. And we're also not rational thinkers as human beings. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> true. So st the power of story and, and, and using story to help people understand really complex topics like climate change um, is something that we believe in wholeheartedly and we've seen to be very effective in mobilizing action um, and awareness. And so that's what I spend my time doing. I, I lead both our clean energy work and our climate science work. Um, and I think, you know, my time at the Navy was a great preparation because in addition to all of the great work that the Navy was doing internally to advance climate action and understanding of the issue, there was a big focus on the Navy being a national and international leader on this issue at a time when it wasn't as big of a topic of conversation. And so through working with our public affairs officer and, and you and, and our um, former boss, Admiral Titley, I learned a lot about the power of how you tell the story and how you communicate it to what types of audiences and how that should vary and how that can be quite effective in actually getting things done. Um, so I think that was frankly a great preparation. And it was also a great preparation for understanding policy and how the policymaking process works and understanding science and how scientific thinking and scientific research can, inf can and should inform the story that we're telling. Because if we're not grounded in the science, we're not going to ultimately be effective. Well said. And I, I know that, that I love hearing that because that's exactly what we preached, if you will, when we were running task force climate change in the Navy. And for those who, who want to really get an in-depth uh, understanding of climate change in the American blue economy, a prior episode, I believe it was October, uh, we had a really expert panel uh, that went into these topics in detail uh, and included Dr. Peter Domenicall, the director of Woods Hole, so oceanographic institutions. So that may be sure to tune into that if you want a full treatment of it. Um, but we are focusing on national security here. And so, uh, you know, what the DOD and the Navy are doing with respect to climate and sustainability, I think we're definitely we're going back to. And I, and I will do that in a bit, Courtney. But I wanted to jump back up to Rob because um, some of the things you said, I, I thought I wanted to dig into a little bit. And um, with respect to blue economy, you and at Delaware, uh, for the state of Delaware, have a, didn't you just establish a center or, or can you explain the, the effort that you invited me to and I wasn't able to make? Yes. Um, so, you know, knowing, um, you know, my work at the Office of Naval Research uh, in 2000, starting in 2017, that was sort of a, a turning point for, um, I, I called it the innovation stack or, or, you know, trying to align some of the more intimately, some of the, the federal initiatives down to the local community level. Uh, so I, I kind of, 
did a little bit of soul searching to figure out like what are some opportunities to explore there and what are some synergies that could potentially be um, looked at and leveraged. And, you know, knowing I've got an oceanography background, knowing at the Alsa Naval Research, I was doing some work around the, um, uh, the ocean atmosphere uh, and space portfolio. And then one of the key projects I was working on near the end before I transferred was the accelerator initiative. Uh, and that had to do with uh, that had to do with, um, you know, commercialization, innovation, SBIR, uh, STTR, those type of programs. So I looked around locally and I said, all right, so if I, you know, granted, Delaware is a, a small state, uh, population less than a million, uh, and some of the areas are, are very rural. We didn't have the luxury of, of the density of maybe like uh, a Rhode Island area with Newark and a lot of the other uh, the national security um, uh, innovators and that ecosystem up there. Uh, so we had to get a little bit creative. Uh, so I looked, I looked around and I and identified that the College of Engineering, uh, the College of Earth, Ocean, Environment, and the Horn Entrepreneurship Program, uh, they should they should maybe work a little bit closer closer together. Uh, so I started working with them, uh, connecting around the idea of blue tech, and this was back in 2017, uh, and really taking a, a critical look at what was the what was the allocation of time and effort that was going into basic research versus applied research. And if indeed we could reallocate some of the efforts uh, toward applied research, well, now we're closer to industry, we're closer to tech transfer, we're closer to some of those uh, emerging problems that, that are over the horizon that we haven't actually been addressing yet. Uh, so ultimately, since then, uh, we've been hyper-focused on blue tech. We've, uh, we've merged together uh, a lot of different um, relationships uh, throughout the across the colleges throughout the university. Uh, and University of Delaware had actually been working uh, on a center for autonomous and robotic systems already. Uh, so the, the good thing is the two people I was interacting with the most uh, around Blue Tech, they happened to be the director and deputy director of that center. So we had a Mackie or mechanical engineer as the director and an oceanographer as the deputy director. That's uh, Dr. Bert Tanner and Dr. Art Trembanis. Uh So I, I started interacting with them a lot and, and really helping them navigate some of the the language and and how the, what the crossover is of the work that they were doing that that was applicable to national security problems you know they and th this seems to be common i've wor worked with a couple other universities as well and that whole translation that national security translation is something that uh, is always an area for improvement for some of these uh for so, some of the academic uh, players that are they're doing some good research uh, so ultimately, we started working together more. Um, we had another individual show up uh, from, he was retired from P&G. He moved to Lewis, Delaware, uh, and he, uh, he was able to land some funding and started, started an uh, eco-entrepreneurship program that looked at you know, clean green and blue um, uh, type technologies. And he has, has a, a more structured and funded program uh, to focus on uh, commercialization and bringing tech out. Uh, so just kind of come full circle to plug in. So what you're referring to is the Engineering Research Center. Uh, so I, I believe it was about a year ago, they had sent some proposals in to NSF to get funding for an Engineering Research Center. And the amount of work that we had done within uh, Blue Tech uh, and connecting the dots and in, in industry partnerships, it was an obvious, um, it was an obvious focus to, to lean in and have an ERC or an Engineering Research Center to have that ERC focus on blue tech and ocean robotics. So they were able to secure uh, phase one funding for planning. 
Uh, and that allowed for us to aggregate all the work that we had done over the last couple of years into a more formal structured uh, proposal, which could potentially lead to a multi uh, a multi-phase award um, over the next ten years. And other ERCs around the nation, uh, they have um, they have different models that they approach, but ultimately the goal is to have a a self-sustaining uh, uh, engineering research center. Uh, that has it's basically a center of excellence that cuts across scientific and engineering areas, uh, and then actually has a lot of interaction with industry and the local community. So ultimately, that's what we've rolled everything into. That is the ERC that the University of Delaware is leading, uh, but they also have participating universities: uh, University of New Hampshire, Rhode Island, South Carolina, UPenn, uh, Delaware State University. Uh, and we're all coming together to to really look at some of the challenges over the horizon that the blue economy will will that we've identified or haven't been identified yet. You know, there's some some coordination issues that are that are going to be needed to look at how fisheries and offshore wind and maritime shipping all play together. And ultimately, the ERC is focused on uh, more the hardware side, the the ocean robotics piece to it, because we we see that we see that as the, a need to change the economics around what the costs are around some of these ocean ocean uh, robotic systems. Uh, and we also see a lot of value in these ocean robotic systems, UAVs, UUVs, they could serve multiple missions. Unlike a tractor on the farm, you could have a UUV, you just, depending on the sensor suite, it could go out and sniff some nutrients around a fishery, uh, you know, a, a fish farm. It could then maybe do some coastal surveys pre, uh, prior to a storm. It can maybe even go out and do some inspections around cables around offshore wind. So that's what the ERC is. Um, we're still in our very beginning stages, uh, but ultimately it's coming together nicely, uh, and it's it's a it's a pretty exciting uh, group. Of, it's a pretty um, exciting initiative to be a part of, and the group is 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 very passionate about what they do. Oh, I bet I, I'm connected to a number of entities that are doing some similar work. In fact, you must have. It's like you read my mind. Uh, I had just recorded a podcast on blue tech and blue economy workforce development yesterday. And this was, these were all the topics. And, and in fact, and I am, uh, I just finished an op-ed, which should get published this week on uh, the Navy and its unmanned or uncrewed surface vessel fleet and how that fleet needs to grow. Uh, but um, someone with great experience in that area, marine robotics, uncrewed or unmanned systems is Kitch Kennedy. Because Kitch and I were together, uh, I believe it was when we were working for the SEALs, Naval Special Warfare. And weren't you experimenting with, uh, were you experimenting with a UUV, the, the Gavia? Yes, sir. So yeah, you're correct. We, uh, when we were working with the SEALs and, and the special operations community, we did uh, look to investigate using unmanned surface, uh, unmanned uh, underwater systems. As, as Rob mentioned, you can put many different types of sensors on those systems. And so as we were working with the special warfare community, uh, I put, in particular was working with the special boat teams who are uh, the special warfare community boat operators operating boats to insert and extract seals in their operations and their missions. And uh, they were working in uh, Iraq during the height of the Iraqi war. Uh, going down the Euphrates River and, and many other rivers in Iraq that, that were not well charted. And so what that meant for them is they were navigating with risk because they didn't know what features or navigation hazards might be in the way that could cause significant damage and uh, loss of life and limb. And so we looked at 
what it was an IVER system, uh, IVER unmanned system with a side scan sonar and a depth sounder. And the side scan sonar, what that allowed us to do is use an acoustic image of the bottom and it essentially allows you to identify features uh, and, and objects, whether it's a tire or a rock or a sandbar, uh, or even you can see weapons and, and even s small objects like mine-like objects. Uh, with that coupled was the uh, sensor to the, the single beam echo sounder, which takes the depth of the water. And using those two, we can now put, create a chart that can show both the depth of the water and if there's any navigation hazards so that as they're transiting down the river, they could avoid those. Uh, so that was definitely one of the early uses that we had with special warfare community of employing an unmanned system uh, to help you know, improve the, the, the success of their mission and reduce risk to those operators. Right. So another great example of the military s sort of uh, um, spurring on innovation that then now gets uh, kind of grows in the private sector. Uh, in fact, on the topic of marine robotics, at the time in 2006 to 2008, when Kitch and I were working with the Navy SEALs, uh, marine robotics were kind of limited to certain like the, like the gliders and uh, that the, naval, the, the oceanography community and academia were using. But to actually use AUVs, high-end uh, autonomous underwater vehicles for the, the purposes like Kitch mentioned, that was relatively nascent. And, uh, and so the, the Navy, because of the needs in the Arabian Gulf and also with the needs in the uh, Tigris and Euphrates rivers that he talked about, uh, we ended up going into partnering with industry. The Navy did to just advance the state of, state of play in the, in, in the, of the technology. And, and that's just grown ever since. I actually i am a member of the Association of Unmanned um, Systems International, and uh, and it's a kind of a trade association for underwater and uh, pardon me, unmanned systems or uncrewed systems, and uh, it's just amazing how much the community has blossomed. I, again, my op-ed is going to come out probably in Real Clear Defense this week. I'll highlight that. Um, but and Kitch, just one more thing. So this is kind of a thread in your career of safe safety of navigation. You did that as a were you a lieutenant then with the name of Special Warfare? I was a lieutenant commander at the time. That's right. And then you went on and you commanded the Navy's fleet survey team. Is, isn't that correct? Uh, I was an executive officer, but yes. Uh, so second in command of the fleet survey team, which uh, another... So you're right. Uh, navigation's kind of in my blood and it's it's really what I enjoy, the, the hydrography and the science of, of collecting that data and putting it on a chart and and helping visualize what a mariner is going to see and how you can help them, again, navigate uh, more safely and efficiently. Um, but yeah, sir. So I was at the fleet survey team, which was a small arm of the Naval Oceanographic Office. Uh, and the Naval Oceanographic Office has several large, uh, we call them white chips because they're painted white, and they go out and conduct uh, large scale uh, you know, oceanographic surveys, uh, deep water surveys. Uh, but the fleet survey team is an expeditionary unit and we would travel uh, both sometimes with our own vessel and other times with our own equipment, uh, multi-beam sensors, single beam sensors, inertial uh, navigation units, and basic GPS units to do uh, topographic mapping. And we would travel around the world where the Department of Defense needed us. And if we had our boat, we would uh, we would use our own boat, but other times we'd find a boat of opportunity and strap that gear on and, and do all the offsets and measurements to make sure that we had all the information correct from where the GPS sensor was to where that side scan sonar was uh, tailing and, and the multi-beam sensor and go collect that data. And then again, create a chart and provide that right there on scene to the, to the operator to say, 
where you, before you might have had data uh, that in times it, it's it's interesting that people don't realize that there are charts still out there that have data from Captain Cook on it, uh, and uh, with land uh, reclamation and sedimentation, the coast is always changing. So there were times where operators were navigating off of information that was 50, 60 to 100 years old, and and they were doing it uh, just kind of by the skin of their pants, hoping they weren't going to run into something or have a, have a collision with a un, underwater feature. And so we were able to come in there uh, in rapid fashion, collect that data, create a chart and turn it around and provide them something with right, right there on scene. Well, yes, we, we shared that history kind of. Uh, it was my first tour in the Navy in 1991 after graduate school where I uh, was on a hydrographic ship that did the same thing right after the first Gulf War, cleared the whole area because some of the soundings were from the Royal Admiralty in 1888. And and because currents move the seafloor and, and reshape it over the years, the, it wasn't really safe for aircraft carriers to operate there. And then I ended up navigating on the, with the same charts I made uh, when we went into Iraq again during Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003. But uh, that's another topic. Um, I wanted to sort of piggyback on this theme of the the military preparing leaders and technology and having to kind of move into uh, the civil sector and support um, a- action there uh, by going to Courtney again. And um, I, your story is really neat, Courtney, because you um, kind of like Kitchener Rob in their initial military careers, you came to the oceanographer of the Navy's office, my office as a Noah Knauss fellow. And, um, and so you were, it was kind of like a blank slate, like, and so you happened, we, we said, we want you to do this climate change work and you ran with it and helped shape our, the Navy's policies on climate change. We developed a roadmap on, on what we were gonna, how we were gonna address it. And, and so I wanted to just a little, ask, ask you to elaborate a little more on what you learned then during your very brief Naval experience and how that has helped you um, in your career and now your contributions at Climate Nexus? Sure. So um, I was really fortunate to, to land in the right place at the right time, I think, in that um, my one-year Canals Fellowship then parlayed into almost three and a half years as a civilian um, with the oceanographer of the Navy's office. And the Canals Fellowship is a really unique opportunity for those that aren't familiar with it. It's a Marine and Coastal Policy Fellowship. It's run through NOAA, but they place fellows for this one-year stint, um, both within NOAA and other federal agencies and and some folks on the Hill. And it's a fantastic learning opportunity. I certainly couldn't have predicted that I would have chosen to work for the Navy for that year, but it really um, taught me a tremendous amount. And I was there at a unique time. It was the very beginning of the first Obama administration. There was a tremendous amount of energy uh, within both the administration and federal agencies to work on climate change. It was a time when um, Obama was really jump-starting the national ocean policy and other climate change efforts that required a lot of interagency collaboration. And it was a time when, as you said, Admiral, the Navy was really becoming a leader on climate issues within the federal government and beyond. So some of the things that I learned there were really a a deep understanding of policymaking, but 
also how to talk to scientists. We spent a lot of time on task force climate change, interacting with some of the most cutting edge um, researchers and scientists from institutions around the country to uh, really begin to understand what is this climate challenge? How is it going to affect the Navy in the near term? And what are the implications of that in terms of resourcing the, um, the Navy and the long-term implications of national security and climate change? So it was a really fascinating delve into how science can inform the policymaking process and then how we begin to make that policy coordinate within the, the Navy and the Department of Defense, which wasn't always easy but was often rewarding um, and and really push the Navy to understand this issue and advance action. And that's one thing that I really enjoyed about my time was just the opportunity to think deeply, to work with a lot of experts. I think that the military and the Navy in particular has a great history of giving young, ambitious people a lot of responsibility out of the gate, uh, which was certainly my experience. And, and that certainly only improved my technical skills, my policymaking skills, but also my comfort in, in really um, pushing solutions forward as quickly as, as possible in a fact-based way. Well, that's a great story, uh, Courtney. And you know, it's, you're right about giving young people responsibility. You were the policy equivalent of giving a, you know, a young ensign the, the, an officer of the deck qualification on a billion-dollar destroyer and basically being in charge of that billion-dollar ship. But we put you in the Pentagon and you were in charge of billion-dollar policy, basically, and shaping the, for example, um, and this is definitely a big blue economy uh, aspect of climate change, and that is sea level rise and this impact on naval installations. Because these naval installations, for one, are, as I talked about during our recent podcast on the USS Kitty Hawk, are, are really key contributors to local economies, the, 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 the businesses and contractors that support them, the many sailors that come in and out of the bases and on, on and off the ships every day and their contributions to local economies. And so, but then here you go, the climate nexus in this is, is sea level rise and its impact on installations. And you, you, um, you know, that was a big part of our climate change roadmap, assessing, assessing that impact and vulnerability. What, what, what do you remember from, um, you know, our looking at that issue and trying to apply the best science towards it? Yeah, that was a fascinating issue to work on um, because, like I said, you know, the Navy was really one of the first agencies thinking about this in a really in-depth, rigorous manner. And so there wasn't actually a lot of previous information to look at and, and be able to sort of model what other agencies were doing. We did work really closely with NASA because they were doing some pretty interesting downscaling of climate models to understand how climate change was going to impact their installations. So we were able to learn a lot from them and collaborate. But the other thing that I learned was that, you know, in addition to the, sort of having the rigorous analysis on hand to understand the problem, you need to know how to communicate it. And I remember pretty distinctly when we first went to talk to a lot of the folks at NAFAC that run the facilities, a lot of them are engineers, it was really hard to get through to them and, and help them understand why sea level rise was an issue that they should care about. And at the end of the day, what we found really resonated was explaining the impact on total ownership cost. So if we could explain to them how this would, in, how sea level rise would 
ultimately increase the cost of running the installation on a regular basis, that's what clicked for them. And I think that was really for the folks at the Pentagon. For the folks that were running installations on a day-to-day basis, many of them were already seeing the impacts firsthand. So certainly the folks in Norfolk, where they were experiencing even 13 years ago when we were working on this, they were experiencing sunny day flooding and and issues that were persistent problems. the Naval Academy flooded terribly, I remember, during, I think it was Hurricane Isabel. Um, and so a lot of a lot of folks that were running the installations on a day-to-day basis already knew what was happening. They just they just didn't know how to connect the dots, really, and understand what then to do. So that was part of our role, was really to be able to connect the dots and say, yes, this is a problem, and Navy leadership cares about it, and we want to figure out how to help. So that was a really interesting thing to work on that I think um, we were probably a little bit ahead of our time, you know, um, in, in grappling with that issue. But I think certainly today, there's no question that um, sea level rise is impacting installations around the world and is a problem that that needs to be grappled with and taken seriously. Oh, of course. And, and in fact, I was interviewed uh, by Bloomberg News last week about this recent no report on sea level rise. And it's it, I, I have to ask you a question about that. Uh, when we, we were meeting with NOAA uh, to talk about their estimates for sunny day flooding, basically, you know, their predictions, it was an annual report. And do you recall meeting Dr. Billy Sweet? I think so. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up working with him closely when I was at NOAA. Uh, he was an oceanog- oceanographer in, in the Ocean Service, still is. So we met him at the first time when you and I were working on this and trying to understand from the, you know, the lead science agency on this issue what was happening better. And then come, you know, then next step, I'm working with Noah and I, I'm, I'm kind of help interacting with him and learning more about what he did. And now that I'm out of Noah, uh, this report comes out last week, his annual report, and he's the prime author again. And, and it's even worse than it had been before. The, I think the prediction was a foot by 2050. Uh, and, um, and so I was interviewed about that. And, you know, it, and I, it's interesting. I shared a story. Uh, that I'm living on the western shore of the Chesapeake Bay. I'm looking out on the water right now, and I've been here for 12 years. And we would occasionally get that kind of sunny day flooding into our basement, you know, two to two to three inches, two times a year. We, we get that now about four times a year. And this last event, and it was just a, basically a southeast wind. It wasn't a big storm. And, uh, and we had two feet in our garage, and it was a mess. So we're talking, this is not only, I mean, it's, it's, this is an economic issue for coastal residents. So it's a big deal. It's also a big deal for the Navy, as we discussed. Um, but anyways, I thought that was interesting because now me and Billy have been working together for a long time and I'm seeing the, his, his predictions pan out uh, in a big way. Yeah, that's that's that study got a lot of media attention too, as it, as it should have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, well sir, I was going to, I was going to add, you know, in terms of when Courtney was talking about the flooding at Norfolk, um, as anybody that sailed out of Norfolk, you always knew if if you're going to deploy for many months, don't park on the pier. Don't park near the pier because it was a good chance that when you returned to port, uh, your car was probably likely flooded. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in fact, interestingly, that there's that another big aspect of sea level rise and the military and local economies is the, the fact that the flooding in town often prevents sailors from getting to the, the on the base as it is and reporting to work. And that's a major readiness issue. 
Um, that, that, and and uh, Kitch, I forgot, where were you stationed in Norfolk? What was your command? So I was on the um, USS Monterey. It was my first ship. And then I was on the USS Theodore Roosevelt for my second ship. Ah, well, let me jump to you and then I'm going to go to Rob because I know he was also at the Weather Center in Norfolk, but first to you. So this this is an interesting topic we explored on the last episode about the USS Kitty Hawk. And so you lived in Norfolk, you you went on to the base, you know, you were on an aircraft carrier. So you and 5,000 of your best friends were living off the base and then come, coming on and deploying. And, you know, from your standpoint, and I, I remember your wife's is Sarah, isn't that right? Correct. Yes, sir. Yeah, you, and you have how many children? I have two, a daughter, Mackenzie and Jackson. Yeah, that's right. I love, love those names. And so here you are, you're like any other Navy family living out in town, coming in on base. And just what's your personal experience about how you supported local economies in, uh, in Norfolk or, or what, what town did you live in? Uh, we lived in Chesapeake. So we lived a little bit away from the base. But, but yeah, I mean, definitely, like you said, I mean, you have 5,000 people on a carrier and Norfolk has anywhere between three and four carriers uh, and then 20 to 30 other ships uh, with anywhere from two to 500 people on them. And all those people are living out on the economy uh, and supporting the supporting their support. They're supported by the economy and they are supporting the economy. So it definitely has a big impact. And and interesting, you know, with those, it was always when the carriers were out, you knew it because the streets were quieter. Traffic was less. It was easier to get your pizza on time. But when the carriers were in, you know, every it was crowded. Uh, if you wanted to get to the to the base by seven o'clock, you better get you better leave by six because it's going to be uh, a, a log jam at the uh, at the gate. But but like you said, sir, I mean, the, those uh, those sailors are, are living off the economy, uh, and and not just that economy, but uh, the of the sailors, but they're all the services that are supporting the ships, whether it's the tug services, uh, the harbor services, uh, the Army Corps of Engineer clearing out the channels to make sure that the ships that the, the channels are deep enough so the ships can get in and out. Out, um, you know, preparing the buoys. I mean, so there's there's a whole economy that's just supporting that infrastructure there that definitely impacts uh, impacts the overall economy for that city. Uh, and then I would say, as you're out navigating and, and you're out on operations, uh, you go visit other ports, other you know, whether it's Charleston or New York or or Pensacola for fleet weeks. So you're bringing those uh, that money and those people to that economy as well. So I think it definitely has a big impact. Uh, across the across those ports where where ships are visiting. Oh, that's a great topic you brought up, Fleet Week. So these are these events in ports around the country that uh, where where the Navy steps up and does a big basically PR uh, effort for a week, and and they're a lot of fun for anyone who's done it. I've done one in New York, in New Orleans, and I actually did one um, that they call I think they call it Navy Week, uh, where they're in the towns within. The U.S. that aren't aren't coastal, like I did this in Springfield, uh, Massachusetts once, and it's all just to promote the Navy and their contributions to um, our national security and to uh, to our the re- region regional um, interests. And so, but that Fleet Week is really a giant economic um, plus up for any you know, any city that hosts it. Uh, I recalled the one in New Orleans, and it just attracted a ton of people to visit the ships, as well as New York. Um, let me ask, so Kitch, did you have, which fleet week were you a part of? What city? 
I went to we went to New York Fleet Week, which was awesome. And and like you said, it's not just that we're bringing the the Navy's bringing their uh, their dollars to the economy, but I think it's also like you said a PR to introduce people to the Navy that might not have ever seen it or never seen being a sailor as a career. Uh, they've never met. They've watched their movies, but now you get to go on ships and you get to see what it's like and talk to sailors and understand this is what they do. And hey, if I want to be a mechanic or an airplane mechanic or navigate a ship or be a METOC officer or whatever it is, let me talk to one and really know what it is. And, and so it's a recruiting effort as well. Yeah. And, but, and, and as the, the great kind of vignette uh, fleet week from an economic perspective is that, you know, if you wear your uniform out in fleet week and you go to any bar, like in New York, you know, drinks, drinks are free. <laughs> because that's, that's true. Yes. You, you know definitely. this. Yeah. So yes. uh, Rob, I wanted to go back to you. You, you, didn't you have a tour at fleet weather center in Norfolk? I, I did. I had a um, yeah. I had a. Uh, I spent time in San Diego on active duty uh, in the early two uh, thousands. Uh, I was on the USS John C. Stennis. Uh, and oh, you too. Yeah, and then uh, I did spend some time over at the Fleet Weather Center, uh, San Diego, on the on the reserve side, and then also uh, I spent time at the Fleet Weather Center in Norfolk on the reserve side as well. Um, so a lot of experience in and around the the Norfolk and San Diego, you know, concentration areas, uh, and you see it. You know, I mean, you see a lot of the young sailors. Uh, I mean, I was one of them on when I was active duty. I lived on the ship. And, you know, every waking moment when I wasn't on duty or out to sea, we, we were out. We were out in town, whether, uh, you know, we'd hop on our, our bikes and we'd take a bus and we'd go downtown San Diego or we'd go through Coronado and take the ferry across uh, to downtown San Diego, make our way to the, it was a Balboa Park where we used to play uh, countless hours of, of disc golf uh, and we'd eat lunch and you know when when we um, we had a buddy who, who got his uh, his jeep shipped out from from Arizona and we ended up every single weekend we'd go out on uh, a camping trip or out to the mountains or we'd go fishing uh, it was just a continuous um, continuously out in town you know there's only so much uh, sheet cake and mystery meat that you can eat on the ship uh, so you 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 definitely wanted to explore the the sights, sounds, and eats of the San Diego area and, and the surrounding area. And even now, you know, um, well, you know, then transferring over to the, to the East Coast, you know, with my fiance at the time. Uh, and we lived out in town. We lived in a condo. We ate out. We bought all our, you know, we were a new, new couple at the time and bought all our, our furniture from local stores. And we, we still have some of them 20 some odd years later. Uh, and you know, we were just embedded into the community and it's funny. It's, it's, um, there's always the cycle. It's the first and the 15th of the month, which is payday. So, you know, that you are going to see a massive line at the barber shop on the, on the 15th or the first, if you had Navy federal though, you got paid a day early. So you had to jump on everyone else. But, um, you know, the, as, as Kip at Kitch had said, it's, you know, out in town, you know, uh, when, when the sailors are getting, when they're in, in port and you definitely know when they get, when payday is. Uh, and then even now, you know, as a reservist, you know, we, we go in once a month and then we go in for our two weeks AT. I have to go out to Fort Meade and I go out there with a couple hundred other people uh, every month. And we're eating at local restaurants that we typically wouldn't eat at uh, because we don't, some of us don't live in this, in that area. So we definitely are contributing to the local economy, uh, you know, through, you know, through um, eating at restaurants and staying at hotels and, and, you know, doing other things around town. So definitely a major yeah. contribution. Right. You know, it's interesting. You we're, we're touching on a lot of things that I've touched on before in previous episodes, like like tourism and recreation, where, 
so much of that at industry, certainly on the coast, like you described with, with San Diego and even Norfolk with Virginia, Chesapeake and Virginia Beach, where uh, sailors are out there do, do, participating in a lot of those activities, whether it be uh, beach going or, uh, you know, surfing was one of the topics we talked about during my, my, May, my May podcast with the founder of Pro Surfing, Ian Carnes. And, and just all that there is about uh, those contributions to the blue economy. And th- there are sailors and, and civilians from bases that are all in the mix. So it's, it's, a, it's everything. And it's kind of, it's interesting, you know, and I'm glad that um, uh, I had the Kitty Hawk episode to prime my thinking on this because we all take it for granted for those of us in the military. But, um, um, but let, me, let me turn it back over to Courtney St. John with Climate Nexus and, and sort of change gears just a tad. Um, because one of the things you mentioned, I think was, is a great way to sort of, um, wrap up some of our discussion. And it was, so here we, we've talked a bit about tech and, and, and some of the science that the military supports, like through the office of naval research, Rob had talked a bit about that and, and you didn't mention it, but we, we did have office of naval research funding, Courtney, um, to look at things like the Arctic and Arctic change. That was a big deal for us, uh looking at, at what was happening there because it's an ocean and the Navy cared about it. And it was, it was in that effort that looking at the Arctic, especially, um, and I know that we did this with a, a person named Commander Blake McBride, quite a personality. I, I know Courtney remembers him well. And that, um, yeah, yes. And, uh, but what you had mentioned this, and I love this, that what, what, what we did is we, we showed leadership, thought leadership, um, in in this area of addressing climate climate ad- adaptation, and it, and now the DoD, the Department of Defense, has released a climate adaptation plan. It's fairly robust, and uh, it covers a lot of the things we were looking at um, back when we started around 2010 to 2014, and um, you know, like sea level rise and insulations, and um, it, so in that thought leadership that we showed. Um, I want to, I'd like to know, uh, you know, you mentioned this briefly, but can you give me some examples of how you've carried that forward into your present job? Sure. That's a great question. So, um, you know, I think one of, a few of the lessons I learned on, on thought leadership, we had a real emphasis on educating the sailors and officers of the future. So, you know, we worked closely with the Naval Academy at the time to both give them guest lectures, um, but also to embed thinking about climate change in their curriculum. And so that's one thing that I've really carried forward with me is whenever I have the opportunity to speak with a student group, um, which I've had the good fortune to, to give a number of guest lectures throughout my career at various educational institutions or talk with a student coming out of college who wants a career in the climate space, um, I always take that opportunity because I think, you know, to use a a Navy metaphor, climate is an all hands on deck issue. You know, it affects, it affects every corner of our life from our economy to how we procure food and goods and our financial system. And we really, we need people from all areas of expertise to address it. Um, and everybody has something to offer, which I find really empowering, actually. And and so that's something that I I try to communicate. And, and I think the Navy really set me up with a good example of how to do that in terms of educating the, the, the next generation of workers. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing that I really took away was um, in the case of Task Force Climate Change, we 
the the Navy is a mission driven organization, and that you know thinking through about climate change through the lens of the Navy mission was paramount to everything that we did. And that's just a great organizational lesson lesson for whatever type of, of company or um, entity one works for in the future. And so that's another lesson that I've carried forward with me is, you know, how does climate affect the mission of the organization that I'm working for? And because then that's how you ultimately get buy-in and get people to act is by relating it to the the overall goals of the organization. So that's another key lesson that I took with me. And then finally, I think, you know, in, in terms of that thought leadership, um, really thinking about how to embed changes into an organization. And and this was not always easy at the Navy. I think when we were there, we had the good fortune of uh, the Chief of Naval Operations and the Secretary of the Navy, who both found climate change to be an incredibly important issue. Um, and the hierarchical nature of the military worked to our advantage in that because they cared because they cared about it, everybody else had to care about it. Um, that's not the case for other other entities necessarily. But I think that sets a really good example of, you know, the the role of of leadership caring about a particular issue and the impact that that can have, and also the need to really deeply embed it in the DNA of the of the organization and help people care about it in a way that makes sense to them. That's really good. You, yeah, thank you, Courtney, because um, I, I actually, you, you probably wouldn't have thought this, me being where I was as an admiral, but I learned through, and I actually it started out as a captain uh, working those things, or really as a commander, but in that whole process, um, I learned similarly, you know, and, and improved upon um, like being really specific and thinking through how think, how something will impact an organization and you definitely do that when you lead, when you're a leader, you just, you ha- you're accountable. So you, you get, you get really serious about things quick. Um, so I, I underwent a very similar process. Um, and it, it, I've, ca- I've been able to carry it on when I was in charge of NOAA and uh, similarly having big agency to work with that owned the issue of climate and other, other things. And um, so that's, that's great to hear. I'm really glad too, that us working together for the, that time, uh, has only been good, and you've been you know, you've been able to carry it forward. Um, so wonderful to hear. Uh, I'd like to go to Rob now, and and just sort of just stepping up a bit. Um, you are for your state, you know, a blue tech, blue economy leader, and and you're and, and I know how universities think. They they want to be in front. They want to show leadership. It what it's, it attracts funding, and but but it's also the the sort of in in the academia DNA is to just to be on top and out front and always finding something new and, and, and moving it forward. And um, I'm just kind of curious, you know, you've grown from a, from your time in the Navy as a junior enlisted aerographer's mate to now, you know, leading all your work now. And you've gone through the progression that you cited at the beginning. And I'm just kind of curious what, how you view your leadership role in this, in this space. So one of the key things that I saw, um, at the Office of Naval Research was uh, the valley of death. It is the, 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 the gap that is between R&D and the transition of a technology. Now, the valley of death is a common concept or term that's utilized in product development. It could be used up in, in, or used around the startup community. But essentially, it's, the, it's, it's all very similar, where there's, a, there's um, funding, usually is an issue 
And it, they call it the fuzzy front end where requirements may not have clarity. And many times that's where a lot of great ideas die. They fall into the valley and there's nothing, there's nothing they can get them out. So really, you know, over the last couple of years, like I've, I've kind of found my, my life's work in, in, in helping to build the, the proverbial planks, you know, that make up the bridge to get, get things across the valley of death. And the university is just one of those organizations. Uh, the University of Delaware is one of the organizations that I've worked with. I've worked with startups as well, um, looking at moving technologies out of uh, federal labs, whether it's NASA or um, the Naval Research Lab or, or ARL. But many times you, you just need a sort of a Sherpa and a navigator to get to ensure that that they are mapping some of their efforts toward where the key problems are. Many times. There's um there's not an understanding of of what they're actually building for or building to, uh, so you know what I like to think of myself as is is a navigator or a sherpa for some of these organizations that you know, as there was some conversation we've had uh, today about very very interesting research projects at universities, uh you know like hey let's identify some scallops utilizing um, computer vision and, and AI. Well, what's the applicability to the DOD? What's the applicability to national security? There's a lot of translation that is needed um, to understand how that basic R&D can be applied and, and what is the commercial viability that may be more um, and what's needed to get that technology to a point where it's, it's investable, whether it's through VC, uh, you know, what does a startup need to mature that technology through various uh, milestones to tap different funding sources. What are those funding sources? Uh, so, you know, ultimately, you know, the navigation and the Sherpa uh, activities are where I just, I, I love being uh, in, in this, in this, uh, in this exciting area. You know, I'm kind of at a, uh, at an interesting crossroad. I either have to go um, lean more into ocean or lean more into space. Uh, and, you know, I think space is interesting, but I think ocean's where, where I belong. Uh, so that that's what I've been doing, uh, you know, pretty heavily the last couple of years. And I think I think University of Delaware and, and Delaware as a whole, uh, due to the nature of our coastlines and, and the size and the abilities that we have in, in-house, I think we could potentially uh, be a, a contributing uh, player in the uh, blue economy ecosystem and specifically with ocean robotics. Uh, so that's really where I'm plugging into and, and what, what, what drives me every day. Well, that's terrific, Rob, and I'm passionate about the same, so uh, we will be in touch for sure. Uh, thank you for that. And uh, let me finish with Kitch. And Kitch, you, you, uh, I'm so glad you came on because we've worked together for some time, and um, I've always admired you for your leadership uh, style and approach. You're very personal and positive, and I share that qual- those qualities with you. And so you're really on the tail end of your naval career, and you're going to go forward in some way and carry that your leadership skills forward. And I, I would just love to hear your thoughts about leading in this area of technology and uh, what you hope, where you hope to go next. 
Uh, yes, sir. Well, well, thank you. And, uh, you know, you, you learn, uh, you learn from your leaders that, that you've served under. So, uh, I definitely would attribute some of those aspects that you, that you talked about me from, from the time I served with you. So it's, it's, uh, it's been great. The opportunities I had to, to work under you and, and see your leadership and how you interacted with people and, and got things done. So I took those, took those things and, and, you know, moved them forward in my career. Um, but yeah, you're right. So, uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to, to retire and, and looking out there and seeing what's next. And I, I would tell you, I, I looked at the, the gamut from consulting to selling IT to, to whatever, but I've really focused my search on that, the, the maritime community. Cause I just want to, like Rob says, I have a passion for it and it's really where I enjoy uh, working with the science and the technology and the technologists and scientists that are a part of it. And they're all most, I would say we're doing it for the greater good of the, of the, uh, of the environment. Um, and so I'm, I'm really looking at areas where um, I can leverage both my technical oceanography and uh, meteorology background and hydrography, but also the, the geospatial science and intelligence information and how to not only capture the data, but how do you display it uh, so people can really see it? Because we know a picture is a thousand words. You can show a whole bunch of depth sound soundings or sound velocity information or fishery information in a bunch of spreadsheets. And most people's eyes will bleed. But if you can display it in a in a great geographic uh, uh, image, uh, that's just it's powerful. And then also to be able to take that information and analyze across different layers of information that again previously would be much more difficult. So as I as I look at, it, I think it's not just uh, the technology to to collect the data and uh, and turn it into a product, but it's how do you display it um, and how do you make it accessible to to more than just your community? Um, as I think about what we do at, at NGA, our, our customers are the Department of Defense and we do create charts, but the bathymetry information that we gather, the shoreline information, um, the information on ports and harbors, there are so many more uh, agencies, not just in the government, but outside of the government that can use that information in ways that we haven't thought of before. And if, if we don't make that data accessible, they can't make those decisions uh, in, in as rapid fashion or, or they're making decisions without, without information, which means they might make a bad decision. So as I transition, that's kind of the field I'm looking at is where can I still stay tied into the maritime community and the, and the, and the, and the blue economy, but also look at that geospatial location intelligence technology and try to bring that to, uh, bring that to different hydrographic offices. Uh, because I will say a lot of that, um, those hydrographic offices around the world and a lot of places that, that, uh, do, uh, deep ocean research, it's, it is, it is, uh, universities or it's governments because, uh, that's where the money is. And uh, there are very few commercial companies. I think it's growing now that the blue economy is, is growing and people are seeing the value, but, uh, to date, it's really been the government and it's been universities, uh, that have been leading that. But I think there's a, there's a definite opportunity to bring more, uh, geospatial information capability for, like I said, that not only the visualization of the data, but the the management and uh, analysis across different uh, disparate data sets that can help you make be better decisions. Well, absolutely there, Kitch. In fact, uh, for the visualization point, you know, with the advent of Web3, you're going to see that take a huge role. And uh, I see that also a giant opportunity um, for technology development. You talked about uh, marine transportation, navigation, safety. We did an earlier episode uh, last year on that exact topic, and we focused squarely on it. It was 
right after the Suez Canal uh, blocking by the MV Ever Given. So that's a terrific one for our listeners if they want to go back to it. And uh, and on this topic of, of data, uh, in, in, kind of coincidentally, this Friday, I'll be speaking at the AGU Ocean Sciences Meeting Prelude, uh, hosted by the U.S. Group on Earth Observations, U.S. Geo. And the White House lead uh, will be there, and I'll be on a panel with her and, uh, and I'll be talking about the value of ocean data and increasing the accessibility of ocean data for all the reasons it matters, like the blue economy. So uh, for our listeners, too, that is something to look for. And well, great. Um, gosh, I could go on, uh, but unfortunately, we're right about time. So let me just ask each one of our guests if they have any final thoughts on uh, the topics we've explored, national security, blue economy, sustainability, climate, or anything else we didn't. Uh, so, Rob Nicholson, uh, Delaware, um, state of Delaware, can you, uh, anything you want to share with us as we close? You know, the, the, the blue economy and some of the, the participants and stakeholders uh, that are going to be involved uh, with it, they're, they're very diverse. You know, you've got, you've got, Folks who are um, maybe in a small community that, that may not have the, the, the resources to better prepare for short-term and long-term uh, natural events. You've got you know, universities uh, and, and academic folks that are doing some really amazing research. You've got industry that may not truly understand what are some of the problems that are out there. Uh, and I think it's going to take a village. And what I'm seeing from a trend perspective is, you know, these blue tech clusters being more integrated with each other. And I've been really, really proactive about um, uh, exploring partnerships with the folks up in the Northeast, you know, around the, the Naval X um, tech bridge and what they're doing with Newick. Uh, also, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a, lot, a lot of efforts down at um, uh, in the Gulfport area, and I know that uh, your alma mater, uh, Tim, is, is Scripps. They're doing some great things with with uh, their um, one of their blue tech programs around you know, utilizing and, and working with startups, the startup community. I think there's a lot of opportunity for networking across those other groups. Uh, so, you know, what I'd be interested in is is continuing this conversation with this group, uh, but then also. Just getting tied into more of the the clusters, uh, the blue tech clusters, and and what the activities that that are going on, because I think there's plenty of opportunities out there for for a variety of different people to 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 get plugged into some of these initiatives. Uh, so what I'd be interested in is that is just to further network with other folks that are doing some interesting things around blue tech uh, throughout the throughout the nation, and uh, tying into some of their local activities and and maybe sharing some best practices. Well, that's great, Rob. You just uh, made a perfect segue to a few future episodes, including uh, one on blue clusters uh, that I'll be doing, I believe, in two months from now. So stay tuned. And some of the things you also talked about were in past episodes. For example, the the Gulf of Mexico efforts with Gulfport and the University of Southern Mississippi. We had Dr. Shannon Campbell on who was this yet yeah, last episode, uh, Senior Vice President for Coastal Operations at the University of Southern Mississippi. And she talked about all of those ac- activities in depth. She was great. So thank you for connecting all those threads, Rob. Um, Kitch, Captain Kitch Kennedy, my, my good friend and shipmate and now Director of the Maritime Safety Office at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency 
any closing thoughts? Uh, well, sir, first off, thanks a lot for, for having me. Um, it's really been great to, to listen to, to Rob and Courtney and, and learn from them. Um, so I really appreciate the time and, and uh, it was great. Uh, I would say to, the, to your audience, obviously they're, they're interested in the blue economy and, and, and maritime world, but as, as a, the one still wearing the uniform, I'd say there's definitely opportunity to employ that in, uh, in the defense of your nation as well. And we do a lot of really cool stuff. A lot of people hear about Top Gun and, you know, hunt for red October, but, uh, the Navy needs scientists and, uh, you can, you can do a lot of great stuff and support the, the nation with that. And then as you've seen through, uh, the other panel members here, you can take that knowledge and experience and, and go gr do great things, uh, whether it's, uh, at the state level or, or, uh, other, other agencies and levels. So, uh, thanks again, sir. I really appreciate you having me. Uh, you betcha kitsch. And I really appreciate the recruiting pitch. <laughs> You're a good sailor. Uh, all right. And another former shipmate of mine, uh, Courtney St. John, now with the Climate and Energy Lead at Climate Nexus. Anything uh, that you'd like to share with us at the end? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll echo the thanks. This has been a great experience and a, and a good learning opportunity. You know, the thing that really strikes me about this conversation is the amount of opportunity that we have as a country to address some of the challenges that we're facing in the climate space, which is where I, I sit on a regular basis. But there's so much technological innovation. There's so many smart people working on these issues. And I think it's really important for people to just remember the opportunities associated with it to grow our economy, to create jobs. And this really isn't a technical or an economic challenge. It's, it's really getting the support of, of politicians to advance some of these changes that will benefit our communities um, and do all of the great things that we know they can do. So I'm encouraged by the opportunity. And I think that's um, one thing that I'll walk away with. Wow, Courtney, you, you dialed in to this program like nobody else because uh, that was the whole premise of me starting this podcast is like in the climate space, you know, in the blue economy area with the conflicting uses I mentioned at my intro, um, there are a lot of, there's, there's negativity, there, there's, there's conflict and, um, but that doesn't have to only be the only narrative and I think there are opportunities and looking for win-win outcomes, which like I talked about during the coastal resilience episode a few months ago, um, they're possible. And in fact, what you, what you concluded was exactly what we concluded on that terrific episode about, about the opportunities that exist, the good that can happen that's out there if we just apply a little thought. And, um, and that's kind of how I've uh, approached a lot of things. It's not being a Pollyanna, but it's, it's like this. Uh, as I've said before, when, when I was in the Navy, I never went into a meeting with my, my fellow shipmates like you and Kitch and talked about losing. We talked about winning, how we were going to succeed, prevail, and win the fight, whatever it was. And that's exactly the point of this podcast. And you three have been just terrific at bringing that point home. So thanks everybody for joining me today. This was not only informative, but I think it was a ton of fun and that's how we want it to be. And this latest episode of the American Blue Economy podcast, where we looked at the blue economy and national security. I wanna thank our sponsors at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today. Uh, please join us for our April episode, where we will look at the value of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the American blue economy. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. 
Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time.